Welcome everybody to the East Valley Church Leader Breakfast. It's uh, really great to have you all with us and <clears throat> even just sitting and looking around these tables. It's a beautiful thing to just see leaders and pastors from various parts of our area, various uh, different cities within the East Valley connecting and uh, sharing about what life is like in your each of your various ministries. I really... I, I can probably say this, you'd probably say the same. Moments like this can be just incredibly shaping for us as Christ followers, but as leaders also to come around <clears throat> a table with folks that are maybe outside of our tribe, maybe outside of our streams, and uh, and share what life is like, what God is doing in our areas can be really impactful. So uh, we just want to encourage this. <clears throat> I'm going to pray as we get started and as we launch into our time together. God, we give you praise. God, you are so great. Lord, we thank you for these moments that we have. We thank you for this time that we can share together. Um, These moments that we believe you will use to shape us as pastors, as leaders, um, to shape our congregations, to shape our ministries. We thank you for these times. We pray for our moments around the tables that as we connect, as we meet various folks, that you would use this as a catalyst for us uh, to be uh, impactful, um, to be reflective on our own journey, our personal journeys, our ministry journeys, our vocational journeys. God, what a privilege it is to serve you and to worship you in this way. This is a beautiful expression, and we just give you thanks and praise for it. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. 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 Well, thanks again for joining us. Uh, It's good to have you out here. These breakfasts, we really hope to do these um, roughly about once a quarter. That's the goal for these. And, And so you can kind of be looking forward to further communication on this. This is an extension of something called the Surge Network, which Uh, Some of you in this room might know a little bit about, but some of you may not be familiar with. The Surge Network is really, I'll just describe it this way, it's a collaborative movement of churches that have intentionally and strategically kind of come together, uh, centering their focus around discipleship, looking at this call on us to make disciples and asking ourselves the questions of what does that mean What does that look like for us as local churches, and how can we be fruitful and effective in ministry as we make disciples together? Believing that as the church seeks to be faithful to this calling, that our congregations will be edified, that they'll be equipped for ministry, that uh, our churches, which when I say churches, I don't just mean organizations or systems, I mean people, the people that is the church will be equipped to live out their vocations and their stations of life uh, with kind of a full-orbed view of the gospel and what it means for them in their various vocations and stations of life, uh, believing that all of life is all for Jesus. And so if you'd like more information on the Surge Network, go to surgenetwork.com, and you can get more information on it there. You can talk to me, and I'd love to uh, connect you further with that. But it's great to have you here, and I'm very excited for this morning's talk. And the topic this morning is discovering joy in our limitations. 
which sounds maybe a little bit ambiguous, but we're going to get into more of the meat of what that is for us as leaders and as pastors. I'm so excited today we have with us uh, author Zach Eswine. And Zach's most recent work is a book called The Imperfect Pastor, which uh, even talking to some of you, some of you have read it, some of you haven't yet read it, but uh, I just want to highly recommend this resource to you. And uh, I'll just say two things about it. One, do you know how sometimes you have books that you read, you take in, but there are some times when you read a book and the book kind of reads you a little bit? (laughs) This is definitely one of those types of books that it's very personal, and I think especially in the context of pastoral ministry, uh, reading this book was just remarkably shaping for myself, and I know for many of you that have read it, you've said some of the same sorts of things, that this book just in some ways just kind of gets into your world a little bit, gets into your head a little bit of some of the things that we strive towards, some of the things that we think about, some of the things that, um, for better or worse, can capture our heart and our affections as pastors. And so um, this book is one of those books that really reads you. The second thing I would say is that this book is just a tremendous gift to the church. And I would say a tremendous gift to specifically the church in North America, that when we think about, we think about some of the dominant narratives that we have as a culture, uh, consumerism, materialism, individualism, some of the ways that we are driven, some of the <clears throat> ambitions that we have, and the things that we just tend to go after as a culture, our, um, our popularity, um, the celebrity culture that we have, this book really drives into some of the ways in which that can come into our hearts as pastors. And, uh, and so I just think it's such a gift. And so, Zach, thank you so much for writing it. Zach is also a pastor at Riverside Church in Webster Groves, uh, Missouri, and he's also a professor at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. And so uh, I want to invite Zach Aswine up now. Zach, come talk to us, and would you please give a nice welcome to Zach as he comes. Thanks a lot, Josh. Thank you so much. Uh, I come from uh, St. Louis, and uh, my they, there's we were supposed to get three inches of snow there this morning, and we only got one. And so our youngest son, Caleb, who's 13, was bummed because he thought he was going to have a day off of school. And uh, he was still lobbying for why he should stay home from school, um, but he didn't win that one. But uh, I'm thankful to be with you. Uh, I'm... Uh, I've turned to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. I think about joy, I go to Ecclesiastes, and it's because uh, several times, several times uh, throughout Ecclesiastes, the refrain, as you remember, is, so there's nothing better, nothing better, nothing better. How would you finish that sentence? There's nothing better than... And his conclusion is there's nothing better than to eat and to drink and to enjoy your work and to enjoy the wife of your youth. And uh, when you think about that, he's recovering Eden, really, because uh, that's where Adam and Eve were at, uh, in a good creation with each other and with God. And and, um, you might imagine, um, I could imagine Adam 
As you're turning there to Ecclesiastes 10, I could imagine Adam, you know, uh, coming home. I'm going to be completely stereotypical. Uh, let's, uh, Eve's already home. Let's just say it that way. Eve's already home. And Adam comes in. He sets his shovel down. And he says, Eve, I've got to get out of this place. I mean, I was made for more, Eve. I, I want to do things for God. I mean, God is so big, Eve. We've got to get out of here. It's too small for God. I mean, all we do, Eve, is like love each other. All we do is cultivate food and eat it. Then we walk with God. We have peace with animals. I mean, come on, we were made for more. And um, when you come to Ecclesiastes, it's sort of like um, years and years later, the preacher is looking out And he knows what once was. And he sees what it now is and what it's become. And he says, this is meaningless. This is madness. There is nothing better. And so uh, here in chapter 10, he's uh, describing the errors of a leader. And as he does, uh, we find ourselves... I hope, having our humanity recovered and ultimately in Jesus. Now, when you think about the errors of a leader, errors, I'm from southern Indiana, so it's like errors of a leader. The errors of a leader, immediately if if I'm in your shoes, I'm thinking, oh, no, I should not have come to this pastor's gathering because I'm about to hear about three or four things in a very powerful way and how I should be different than I am. But I'd like to encourage you in a couple things. Number one, this is poetry. It's a very kind thing. God isn't speaking like a prophet in Ecclesiastes 10. He's not coming to you saying, Woe to you leaders, like he does in Ezekiel. Woe to you shepherds. Right? Here, he's the sage. And uh, that means he gives us a few bits of poetry. Do you like poetry? Now you're thinking, oh no, now I really shouldn't have come. Poetry. God's a poet. He loves poetry as well as saying woe to yous. He loves to say the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. He's a poet. And he gives us these bits of poetry, Proverbs. Now the wonderful thing, the infuriating thing about poetry, right? is that you often don't get it first time around. And we want to be able to look at something, get it, and move on. But poetry slows you down. You have to meditate, reflect, think. That's a very hospitable thing. It's infuriating, but it also is wonderful. It gives you room. It gives you time. You don't have to know it right now and move. And so... When he talks about the errors of a leader here, he's very gracious, room-giving, hospitable. He invites you to think, meditate, reflect upon this. And the primary problem that leaders have, he's going to tell us, is we think we're immune. Or another way to say it is, we forget that we're human. So I'd like to pray, and then we'll take a look. Let's pray. We ask, Lord, that you'd grant that your spirit, by and with this word, would make much of Jesus. Amen.
Jesus tells a story about two people who go to pray. You remember this. And uh, the one person stands at a distance, face to the ground, beating his breast, right? The tax collector. The other person, let's remember the prayer of the other person, the clergyman. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Remember? I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Especially this tax collector over here. Can I suggest to you that uh, the true sage, Jesus, the one greater than Solomon, who told stories like that, can I suggest to you that this thought that I'm not like you and you're not like me is perhaps the most deadly temptation we face in ministry. That all the other ones flow out of this one. Uh, It is, you know, when... um, So if I'm in Webster Groves and uh, the new church comes into town um, and then they put signs in yards all around in the same neighborhood of the church that I serve. There's signs in yards telling them about a church down the way. And then in the newspaper, because the church is new, they take out an ad in the Kirkwood Webster Times, right? They take out an ad to talk about how their church is not like any other church in the community. And how all those other churches in the community are subpar and going to let you down. That's the implication. But we, right? And in that moment, it makes it very difficult for you and me at the local clergy gathering to pray for our city. Because it doesn't feel like we're collaborating. It feels like we're competing. And I'm just as much of that in my own being, so I want to say, oh, yeah? What kind of budget do we have for signs? You know? And what happens is I am determined and begin to pray, God, I thank you. I'm not like these other pastors in town. I thank you. I'm different. And I thank you. You've brought me here to do what no one else has ever done. Have you ever had that in your being? Maybe it's just me. I need Jesus that much, you know? So here we are. The first bit of immunity is is the thought that you're not vulnerable like other people. And this robs our joy. You're not vulnerable like other people. It's verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it. By the way, I should have pointed out, did you see in verse 5? There is an evil I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. That's where I get this thing, the errors of a leader, right? Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. And you think to yourself, hmm, What does that mean? Well, it's this uh, believing that the leader, one of the primary errors of a leader is to believe that because he's a leader, he can dig a pit and not get hurt. That he can stick his hand into a Middle Eastern wall 
where serpents are known to curl up, and he won't get bit. He can work with stones, large rocks, quarry them, and not get bruised. He can use an axe and split logs and not have to use any safety precautions because he's, he's the ruler. He's the leader. He's no longer human. He's no longer vulnerable like other people are. I was, uh, we were renting a property for about five years. It was a three-acre property there in Webster Groves, unusual. And I was outside trying to take care of that property. It was a Saturday night. I was praying. I'm not always praying on Saturday, but on that one time I was. And uh, I was praying about the sermon and Sunday and the worship service and asking God's Spirit to visit with us. And I uh, pull away this piece of cardboard, and there's a snake right there, curled up, staring right at me. And it took me a minute to remember that most snakes in Missouri are not poisonous. It's just the word most, you know? <laughs> most. And so, um, now that's not supposed to happen. I'm a pastor. I'm a man of God. God bless. Did you hear my last sermon? Babe, I don't need to do the dishes. Did you hear how that my God is blessing my sermon? <laughs> I mean, do you know who you're talking to? I'm not like other people. Uh, when I was uh, in high school, uh, we played football, American football. And uh, I, you know, I was a quarterback. It's hard to believe, but I was. And uh, the great thing about being a quarterback in practice is that they give you a different color jersey. I got to wear the red jersey. And you know what that meant? That meant nobody can touch me. Nobody can hit me in the whole of practice. But here's the thing. In the game, they take the jersey off. I don't have the red jersey on. You got the linebacker staring right at you, yelling things, S-Y in your mind, you know? But I'm the quarterback, you know? And so a, a key error of a leader is to forget that he or she is limited that is we're vulnerable to the same things other people are vulnerable to. We too can get hurt if we stick our hand into a wall where snakes are known to be. May I say it this way? Sometimes the damage that comes into our life isn't because God is out to get you and it isn't because Satan tripped you up it's because poisonous snakes coil up in walls. And if you stick your hand in there, you are foolish. It isn't because God must have wanted or Satan must have done. I don't understand the mystery you know, of God's sovereignty of all this stuff. I'm just saying, don't stick your hand where a snake is. It, it, it really isn't any more mystical than that. <laughs> And so if you do, you fall. You get bit. That's what he's saying. So watch out. Watch out for this idea of thinking that you and I aren't like other people. Sometimes we hear it this way if we think of it in our lives. We think of this word of favor, even anointing, or blessedness. And because that, because God has anointed us or he's 
blessed our work. Or uh, we think we are blessed. I'm going to try to flesh this out for you in just a second. Think about it this way by way of application. What does Jesus say blessedness looks like? He's the one greater than Solomon. What does he say? Blessed are poverty of spirit, beggar of soul. What else? Persecuted for righteousness' sake. The those who are meek, right? Those those who weep. Peacemakers. Yes. This is what blessedness looks like. So may I suggest, I invite you, you can look at it. We're all adults here. See what you think. Uh, But when God blesses your ministry, that is, he bears fruit from it, isn't that because he promised to do so and you asked him to? That doesn't mean, I mean, you know, you and I could, like in this case, preach the best sermon ever. And uh, people were moved. The Spirit of God came. They had a fresh sense of the presence of Christ in their life. And then on the way home, two things happened. You You picked a fight with your spouse or your child. And for all of that, you know, uh, the day you're still who you are. Maybe another way to say it is this way. It's a little crass. Uh, Even if the Spirit of God would bring revival and we kept going for 10 hours together in confession and repentance and fresh tastings of the love of Christ, you and I would still at some point have to go to the bathroom. Sorry, maybe that's a little too crass. It's just a fact. I, uh, personal story, so I'm going to share, I'm going to take us deep real too quickly, really. So I'm just preparing you. I'm, I'm about to drop way down into some weightiness. So I had just spoken, uh, this was many, many years ago, and I had spoken at a conference five times, and it was one of those times where God's Spirit manifested His presence, and peop- we, we encountered Jesus in a, in a memorable way. It's not always like that. <laughs> And that time it was. I won't ever forget it. I'm driving home from there. That was in Indiana. I'm driving home to St. Louis, Missouri. I call my wife to check in. I had just checked in yesterday. Called my wife of uh, f- 15 years uh, to check in. And she let me know on that drive that our marriage was over. And it was. She walked away from God and from our kids and from me. Now there's a whole long story. And there's a good goodness that God has done in the story. But not in terms of reconciliation. I'm a divorced man. Remarried. 
And I've been the primary caretaker of our three kids ever since. I know some of you theologically are wrestling with whether you can listen to the rest of what I say. (laughs) I've had to wrestle with this question. How is it that God manifested His presence through the gifts He gave me in such a powerful, memorable way, knowing full well my marriage was already over and all that meant about what I'd have to see in my own life, what I'd have to come to terms with, but also what I'd have to see. And isn't it something like this? He is faithful to the gifts He gives you because He is faithful to the gifts He gives you for the sake of His people. That doesn't mean that you and I are suddenly immune. Watch out for that. What a freeing thing it is to realize, after all, I'm a human being. I don't have to pray, I thank you, God, I'm not like other people. I get to say, thank you, God, I'm just like anybody else. And thank you for giving me gifts that I get to be part of what is good and enjoyable. And thank you for the grapes we just ate. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for good things and for each other. Have you dug a pit and fallen into it? There is a Savior, one greater than Solomon, who is wise enough to get you out. And this is good news. The second one, and more quickly now, the second is I don't have to pause like other people. We're we're not vulnerable like other people. And the second one is we don't have to pause like other people. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. So you see it? Success, to succeed, is the issue that the leader wants. And there are two ways to succeed. The one way the person uses all the tools and resources they have never pauses to take care of the tools. The other pauses to sharpen the tools from time to time. You see that? It's the tortoise and the hare. It's the the turtle and the rabbit. It's the sprinter and the marathon runner. And so the real advantage of being the fo- of, of seeking success in a foolish way is that for a while you win. Man, this is the subtle, subtle danger. For a while you outpace everybody else. You really do. And in a culture like ours that's more celebrity and consumer driven, you are praised more than anyone else for a while. For a while. Because eventually you start to have to work harder than you should. Right? You ever tried to cut an orange with a dull knife? <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're going to stick with that knife, you're going to have to exert more force than you should have to when you're cutting an orange. 
you start to have to work harder than God intended for you to with things that should not require that amount of effort. But because you don't let your team pause and you yourself don't pause, everyone is getting dull, worn, and it takes it more energy to do the same work. And gradually, gradually, that team and that leader loses. Whereas the one who's pausing to sharpen, oh, that takes humility. Man, you have to take it. You're pausing to take care of your soul, to take care of the soul of your team, to take care of the organizational, internal, whatever. And when you do that, it seems like everyone's slowing down and the other churches are passing you by. Their podcasts, man. Their social media is getting hit. You're taking a break. You have kingdom work to do. This is about God. How dare you pause when God... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't God the one that said like one day in seven and stuff like this? And here God is saying, let your team... Rest. You too, leader, must pause. Because this kingdom work is like a seed, the sage would say, the true sage. It grows. It's a mustard seed. The kingdom it grows. It's a, a little thing that gradually unfolds. Wisdom... Wisdom pauses to succeed. They take strategic breaks for the sake of vigorous, passionate ministry. And those of us who learn to do this together find more joy. You just get to do the amount of work you were meant to do. Isn't that good? You're not meant by God to work harder at cutting an orange than it requires. And your team isn't meant by God to work harder than cutting an orange requires. This is the wisdom of God. And so a leader foolishly resists that and they think, not only am I not vulnerable like other people, I don't have to pause like other people. we got to get after it. And uh, so this idea that we burn out for Jesus is directly confronted by the Word of God. You can check it out. I mean, you wrestle with it, you know. He's the Lord, not me. But it's just something to see our Lord Jesus sitting by a well in the afternoon, tired, asking for a drink of water from someone who doesn't even believe in Him. And isn't it something? I mean, he's 30, what, 31, 32 years old, and he's asleep like at 5 o'clock? And he's so asleep that the storm raging around him on that boat and grown men who are yelling, don't you care that we're perishing, doesn't even wake him up? I mean, do you know any 30-somethings? Are you a 30-something? Do you have a 30-something on your team? Can you imagine 
Four o'clock in the afternoon, you walk in and you're 30 something is <laughs> what you would think. And here's our Lord Jesus withdrawing regularly. It's an error of a leader. Here's the thing about the one greater than Solomon. Though uh, he was equal to God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he took on the very nature of a servant. He was without sin, but he's like us in every other way. He is able to sympathize with every weakness we encounter, every limit we face, every temptation that confronts us. Because he did not consider himself immune. So if God, Emmanuel, God with us, coming to us through God the Son and giving us his spirit, if he did that in such a way that he didn't take on immunity, he was as vulnerable as anybody else, his bleeding and his dying demonstrates it. His fatigue demonstrates it. And he needed to pause just like any wise man with his regular withdrawing. If if our Lord didn't take on immunity, why do we think we can? It's an error of a leader to believe he or she needn't pause now, I'm talking to workaholics, not restaholics. Restaholics, we have other conversations to have. There is hard and good work to do. But, thirdly, this is the fun one. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Okay, let's work with the poetry. Picture the scene. You have a Middle Eastern charm, snake charmer, you know, either it's got dressed up, either does a little flute, does a little thing, you know, and you got a venomous snake in the container there, the wicker basket or whatever that is, and so there's the show. And so people gather around, snake charmer starts to do his thing, you know, snake starts to come up out of there. And then the snake decides to heck with this. Bam! Right? That's the picture. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Like, what was this whole thing about? This guy, the leader, he's all show. He's what Jimmy Dodd calls... Front stage. He's all front stage. No backstage. He's got the the garb. He's got the moves. He's got the snake. But he doesn't know how to handle the snake. He's got the crowds. But he doesn't know what he's doing. It's an error of a leader to have all show. And not know what you're doing. Um, have you ever been uh, 
overlooked. You know, you, you feel overlooked. You, you wanted a particular position. And someone who loves you. I mean, I mean the, most, the, the best possible way you can imagine a mentor telling you, I see these gifts in you. I see that you have potential here. I believe you have a future and a hope with God. I just don't think you should do this particular thing yet. And how devastating that is. Can I tell you, you may have been rescued by the wisdom and grace of God. Because you may uh, desire a position that you actually don't know how to do. I mean, the idea of it is awesome. But when it comes down to it, what would be the point of getting the show and the crowd and the appearance and the garb if you don't know how to handle a snake? And there is an actual serpent, isn't there? Not, not just the poetic one, but the real one. Not just the one in my yard, <laughs> but the one from Eden. And I tell you, there's a reason our Lord's uh, brother said, let not many of you be teachers. There's a reason. Because you have an enemy. And why face that enemy before it's time? In the way that is required with certain kind of positions. Luke, I am your father, you know. Luke Skywalker. He is not ready to face Darth Vader, Yoda tells him. Well, that's just a silly story. Or a meaningful cultural, iconic narrative. Either way, there's a truth in it. Don't face your enemy till you know how to handle that enemy. So be thankful if you're in a wisdom community that's not putting you forward too quickly. Be thankful if you're the rookie quarterback and you get to sit the bench for a year rather than coming on and getting beaten up right away. Be thankful Leaders make errors when they put people in charge who are not ready. And when they themselves presume to be able to do things they're not ready for. Is there someone you're criticizing because you believe you could do their job better? And it would be an advancement to you if you could just step into their shoes. Could I just say, "Ah, be careful with that. (laughs) I was recently reading... um, I think it was Tim Keller who just gave a, he was asked really a difficult question by the New York Times reporter. Wonderful question, wonderful question, difficult to answer in print. Relationally, what an opportunity. And he, he uh, answered it. And then the, all the, the readers, you know, so many comments just blasted how he answered that, you know. And uh, it would be easy to sit back and think, oh, I would have answered it this way. I mean, I would have said this and I would have said that. It's, you know, it's really easy <laughs> to have never been asked the question by a New York Times reporter and had to answer it to say how he should have answered it. And then we repent of those kinds of thoughts and we get back on our knees and we think, wow, what is it about that Christian 
that a New York Times reporter would think it worth his or her time to talk to them. And to give thanks for that. And then to pray for that pastor. Because there are questions that I would ever face in that kind of public way. And that pastor needs wisdom. And I could start to think to myself, well, if I had been answered, well, no, 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 I don't know how to handle the serpent. I don't know how to handle the snake, not the New York Times reporter. I mean the thing, the thing itself, do you know? How about you? So our Lord Jesus, can you imagine, I I was talking about this yesterday, but it makes sense here as well. If you're Bartholomew or Philip, if you're not one of the three, would that have been hard? Is it hard to be Bartholomew? He never wrote anything, and we don't even know what happened to him. Do you think he ever wanted to be Peter? I mean, he's with Jesus. I want to be Bartholomew. I'll take the lowest seat, man, to be able to be with Jesus. But then when you're there, and Jesus keeps overlooking you to ask Peter to come with him on all these, like, secret, uh, intimate opportunities, you know, Peter, James, and John, yeah, there they go again. Maybe Bartholomew was rescued. Maybe he is who he was made to be and did what God gave him to do and bore the fruit with the amount of talents he was given and Jesus will say to him, well done. We don't know what happened, but the Lord does. And maybe that's most of us. Most of the history will likely forget this moment. Most of the world has no idea it's taking place. And most of the world population, I'm starting to sound like Ecclesiastes, doesn't know you exist. And the great work that we're doing are in denominations that are really just drops in the bucket in the world population. It is freeing to be small, pausing, vulnerable, looking to the Savior who is greater than Solomon and succeeding wisely and hearing him say, well done. Come, enter my rest. Words, verse 12, that's a tough one. Man, that's a tough one. The words of a wise man win him favor. But the lips of a fool consume him. Ah, preachers, verse 13 is hard. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. And you can say, and I can say, oh, that's not me. But verse 14, preachers, this gets us. A fool multiplies words. This is just what James tells us in the New Testament. That's why not many of us are meant to be teachers. Because we all stumble in many ways. And the primary way James tells us we stumble is with the tongue, our words. A fool multiplies words. Do you ever multiply words? Someone sends you an email. The subject says, concerned. Oh, yeah? 
you know? Send that off. They send it right back. You know? Now, at that point, it is madness and folly. Because the multiplication of words is getting you nowhere. Right? You ever spend an hour on a text? Okay, 30 minutes. Just trying to get the sentence just right, you know. And this emoji, ah, it's that one. Because nice. <laughs> the idea, you see, is if we just got the sentence right, everything would be okay. Words are like magic. If you just put them in the right order, everything runs smoothly. Now we know that working at words and communication really matters for a leader. But the multiplication of the words, trusting our words. Your words cannot save you, only Jesus can. And your words cannot save any situation you face, only Jesus can. It is an error of the ruler to believe that if he or she just gave us enough words, then all would be well. But you and I both know that sometimes someone says words to you and it's just like wah, wah, wah. You're hurt or your mind is something else. It doesn't matter if the sentence was laid out correctly like your husband might say to you. But this is logical. I know I was stereotyping again. I'm sorry about that. But this is, if we just get the words right. So may I invite you, practically speaking, do not respond. Take 24 hours to respond to the email that says concerned. Give yourself opportunity to go through every imaginary conversation you need to go through. By imaginary conversation, I mean suddenly you're talking in first and second person and no one else is around. It went from a prayer, Lord, he or she said this or that, and I'm feeling, and you said this to me, and now I'm thinking if I, oh, I would just say this to you, and then you would feel this way, and aha, I, prayer is gone now. I, I am in a two-way conversation with an illusion. To win. Okay. I'm just saying, we got to work. You got to let yourself work through all that imaginary conversation. Remember, some of you, some of you think you've actually had the conversation when you haven't. And uh, so you do this, and when you realize you're doing that, you stop and say, "Ah, Lord, ah, Lord." Obviously, I'm full of anxiety and pain. I come back to you. What do I? What do I do? How do I think? So, you need time to work that through before you write that email. If that's going to take you four days of imaginary conversations, then after 24 hours, you say, I received your email. I'm praying. Please pray for me. Let's talk soon. If that person wants to speed up and start shooting off emails, don't take the bait. The multiplication of words is not wise. So that you can finally write an email that's three sentences with an invitation to talk. Well, a leader multiplies words. And in what kind of way in this case is he multiplying words? Vision. 
verse 14, though no one knows what is to be, who can tell him what will be after him? This is vision. Future. Multiplying words about things we actually can't control and we don't know. And so a leader believes that he or she can do that. Finally, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. This is being immune from mundane work. Uh, The leader of the city has to stop and ask for directions. Because to get to know the street names of the place that he governs is just too much work. It wears him out. Do you get that? It's wearisome. We might think of it as the place we serve, the people we serve, all the particulars of names and people and streets and geography, history. It's just wearisome. We have kingdom work to do. Not realizing that God created these geographies and these peoples and is intimately acquainted with these street names and these particulars. And this is his work. And so, uh, if it feels like too much work to get to know a person's name that you yourself are responsible for, then you're entering some kind of folly. That the hard work of knowing the person's name that you're responsible for, that this just is part of what it means to lead. That's what he's getting at. So it's an error of the ruler to think that it's just wearisome to not know his own place where he serves. This is why the one greater than Solomon, you see, he just comes to a local place. You and I have to look it up in Bible dictionaries to find the context of what is Nazareth and what was the temple like and who are the Herodians and the Essenes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the blah, 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 and the blah, people and places. I, don't, I, got, I, got, I got kingdom work. Why do I need to care about these people and places? And then you come back to the fact that just to open up the Bible, God has set it up that it requires neighbor love. The act of opening the Bible requires neighbor love because you have to learn about people and places and names and times that seem irrelevant to us. And yet, God has set it up the way he said through his servant John, if you say you love me but hate your brother, you're lying to yourself. So if you can come to the scripture to find God, but be bored with all the names and particulars and places that God loved and told this story about, then something is wrong (laughs) inside us, you know. We have become bored with things that do not bore God. So for the wise man to say, enjoy your food. God is not bored with food. He created the orange. He loves it. He thinks it's good. So Jesus walked in an actual place among actual people. He didn't speak English. None of the people he served spoke English. 
Jesus would look like a man that makes me and my tribe afraid. A Middle Eastern Jewish man walking down the street. An American didn't die for our sins. A Jewish man did. And if I want to know God as a leader, I'm learning this this man from Indiana has a lot to learn about the globe, particulars of people. I just learned that in Webster Groves, Missouri, the man that I've written about uh, the uh, Boardwalk Cafe that has the best breakfast in town. It says so right on the window. <laughs> and it's a little place. And, and you know, in the heart of Webster Goes, Missouri, which is predominantly white, the person who runs the Boardwalk Cafe is from Turkey. Aki is his name. What's he doing right there in Webster Groves making the best eggs and bacon and toast in town? It is the, a foolish of me not to know the names of streets and the particulars of what God's doing in the very place he's called me to be a part of serving. And it is wisdom. It is no waste of time to know the place that he's called you to serve. In all of this, we thank the Lord because let's face it, if it was a waste of time to know a guy named Zach from Henryville, Indiana, Jesus and I never would have met. I mean, sure, I'm here we are collaborating together, but I'm just unknown in the world and so are you but known by him and he didn't think that a waste of time in the midst of all the kingdom work he's got to do we are the kingdom work he's doing wow wow so when we say that our Lord Jesus the one greater than Solomon died for our sins this is part of what he purchased he he died for us believing we're immune as leaders. He died for that. To save us from that. He, he died for you and I thinking that we're not vulnerable like other people. To free us from that lie. And save us from the darkness of it. And the sin of it. He died for every time we've multiplied words. and Every time you've multiplied words. He applies to you every time he didn't. Every time he didn't multiply words. Every time you refuse to pause. And you won't let your team pause. Every time you fight to keep up and keep pace without pause. Jesus died for that. To save you from it. The folly of it. To free you from it. And to free your team from it. To forgive you. And Jesus died for every time we've thought it boring and wearisome. To know a particularity that he himself delights in. And he's delivered us from that. Have you thought that you're immune? You can be forgiven. Christ has done it. Let's pray. Lord, here we are looking to you, our true wisdom.
thanking you for this bit of poetry, thanking you that you care enough to invite rulers and leaders to consider your ways. And we ask now that by your Spirit you would effectually speak to our hearts, that you would clear away obstacles and resistances, you would clear away anything foolishly spoken, and that you would enable us to solidly rest in you and turn to you in every way we need and receive you in every way you have an intention for us to receive. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Zach. Would you join me in thanking Zach? In our remaining moments together, we're going to move into a time of Q&A. But before we do that, I want you to take two or three minutes just around your table and um, maybe just share a couple impact points for you with those around your table, realizing that probably not everybody will get to share. But uh, within about two or three minutes, just share some brief impact points for you, and then we'll uh, progress on with the Q&A. If you want to submit questions, uh, go to the URL, viachurch.org slash EV, East Valley Questions, and we'll try to get to those. All right. Also, if you guys want, there is more coffee, I believe, if you want to get a refill. Um, but just in these few remaining moments, we just want to take some time to address some of the questions that you guys had and, and, uh, and have Zach kind of field some of these in these uh, few remaining moments. The first question comes from Drew, and this is what he says. He says, read your book. Thanks for writing it. He says, as I seek to learn from and lean into my limitations rather than fight against them, how do I help my key volunteers grow in the same way? And how can this or should this impact how I hire future staff? Let's speak yeah, to that. That's a, that's a great question. Am I, can you hear me? There we go. Sorry about that. There's a lot to say about that good question. Um, but in brief, uh, number one, uh, Drew, we could, where is Drew? It's in here. Yep, thank you. We can make, uh, make these assumptions explicit. So, for example, every time I meet with a volunteer team, uh, we have a template that we go through. It's just a one-page uh, thing. This is uh, one example is in, is in the is included at the end of the book, the imperfect pastor. But uh, the template highlights what you know the key verse for that team is, and um, but then a series of of norms that we value. And every volunteer team, whether it's an elders or worship team or youth team or whatever, repeats these same values every time they meet. And, uh, and uh, those values will say things like um, uh, um, forgiveness is a way of life. Forgiveness is a way of doing team. Uh, um, uh, as a norm, uh, most of the time hurry will not help us. Uh, we're not trying to do something large, famous, and fast as a team. We're trying to do something faithfully small, mostly overlooked, long period of time. Uh, and so it, just several statements like this, um, big things come in small, ordinary moments. And every time we meet, it feels a little redundant sometimes as, the, as a leader. Uh, but uh, team leaders have told me, please keep saying this. 
Uh, we need to keep doing this because they don't hear it anywhere else. And so, um, so uh, one of the statements that we s- rehearse together is um, relationships are no waste of time. Building relationships is not a waste of time and is part of our agenda. Uh, because just to talk through this thing together again, you know, we've meditated on the scripture and we're reminding ourselves of what these things are. You know, that takes a good 20 minutes, 15 minutes. And so a, a, a new team member's leg will start doing this, you know, moving, uh, checking their watch because they feel like you're wasting time. So we're trying to say, no, this is the business. Uh, inhabiting our cultural culture and developing it relationally is part of our business. So that's one thing. It, it becomes a part of the way a team does its meeting. That is also one of our sayings. Uh, we do this team meeting the way we're meant to do ministry. And so for us, that just means uh, if, it's, if it's elders, elders are shepherds in our tradition. Elders are shepherds. And so uh, our meeting isn't reports and percentages. Um, our meeting is, you know, we rehearse these things, then we read something together. Uh, why do we read something together? out loud in the moment and then we talk about it because we're practicing what elders do. You hear someone say something that you cannot change or interrupt and then you have to be able to reflect on it and talk about it with other people. So um, uh, those in the military would say we train the way we fight. Uh, this is why deacons in our tradition deacons are offer mercy and hospitality so every deacon meeting is with a meal. When I do elder, when I do leadership training, it's in my home at my dinner table. Because most leaders do ministry at tables, where I, where I'm at, it's either a restaurant table or a home table. And so to be able to think about theology at a table with tea uh, is what they'll actually do. So we do the meeting as close as we can to imitate the thing. Hoping that by rehearsing, you know, those steps together, the content is gradually sinking in. And also trusting that the way we do it also teaches the volunteer. Uh, there's a lot more to say, but that's, that's a start. Yeah. Excellent. This next question is from Luke. He says, I'm just like everyone else, which makes it hard to know all the particularities of people or names in a large church. Yeah. I often feel trapped between limitations and expectations, even good godly expectations. Yeah. Thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, that's such an important question. Uh, we have the... Uh, everybody... Let's see. Everybody has to know somebody, but everybody doesn't have to know everybody, right? Or something like this, whatever it would be. So yeah, as our as our churches get, if if we're in a larger place, uh, then we have to rely on team. We have to admit our limits and have team a, a collaborative effort with names. The key is that the team knows it's a value. The team knows it's wise. The team knows it's part of their work to know the particularities of people. Doesn't mean that you yourself individually know everyone. But that collaborative, collaboratively, 
this is part of our work. And uh, we move together that way. That's happening in our situation. Our church is a smaller church. You know, most of... uh, I've served about 90 people up until about a year and a half ago. And we've numerically jumped way up. But And so it's in a position where it's very strange because I don't know everyone's name. But as a team, we do. And so... I think that's part of that's part of the joy or benefit of our limit. It it it's it's why Paul teaches us that you know an eye needs a hand and all that in the imagery of the body. That I I am I am on purpose gifted and on purpose limited, so that I have to lean into your gifting, and you have to lean into mine. And so it feels uncomfortable, but if the team knows that the particulars of people are a part of their work then as a team we lean on each other to know names and yeah excellent and I want to honor your guys' time we'll do one more question uh, here there were a few more that came in but they were somewhat related Um, but this last question has to do with preaching how do you show your limitations in the pulpit when you preach talk to us about that there's a lot to say about that um but uh, a, a, a nutshell way to say it uh, is um, I think of the Apostle Paul who said that he's a clay jar and there's a treasure inside of him. He shows us the clay jar. That is, he's going to boast in his weaknesses, which he says, uh, so that we can see the grace, right? We can see the treasure that it's not him but of the Lord. And so when we share a limitation from the pulpit, uh, that's what I think the question was, right, publicly? Uh, Number one, uh, make sure it has treasure talk along with the clay jar talk. Um, Number two, don't say anything publicly to everyone that you haven't said to your team. Your closest people. So your your spouse or your 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 closest teammate should not learn about you from your public messages. They should learn intimacy from you from your life that you do every day with them. And so if you if you find yourself sharing things publicly that your team doesn't know, then that's a red flag for you. That that's a helpful warning that a split is starting to happen. You want it to be that when you share publicly, uh, those who are actively, intimate, actually intimately involved with your life already know this story. Does that make sense? Um, so that you're speaking out of an embodied life rather than a split life. Uh, some of us can use vulnerability. I, I was this way and I could be tempted to it. I, I, I suppose still to use a vulnerable moment because it works in public communication. Uh, so we, we got to help each other watch out for that. So uh, clay jar talk, treasure talk, they go together. Only share if you something intimately if those who are intimate with you already know it. They've heard it first. And then uh, the third thing is let it be appropriate to the text that you're talking about as best as you can. You know, let... Let the story you're sharing rise from the thing you're preaching. Uh, uh, otherwise, um, 
that's just a helpful, wise guard against undoom, unduly moving someone. You know how it goes. Like you see, the, the, it's on television, and it's a commercial. And you see a grandfather and a granddaughter. And the grandfather gets a necklace with his shaking hands. <coughs> And he puts the heart necklace around the little girl. And she looks at it. And she smiles and they hug. And, I, you know, I got tears coming down. And then the words come up. Cotton, the fabric of your life. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Enough with funeral stories. And in the context, what he meant was, anybody can tell stories that make people cry. That doesn't mean God's at work. Just because someone cries doesn't mean that's the Spirit of God. It just means it's a sad story. And anybody who has a heart is going to cry. So those are some frame, quick guides about that. You just wrecked all our illustrations. <laughs> that's right. I know. <laughs> I'm saying that as someone who's done that and trying to learn otherwise. So, <laughs> Zach, would you mind if, in closing, if we just... I'll lead out in a prayer, but if you would agree, just... Prayer for you and ministry and uh, your life. Sure. You've so blessed us, and I'd love us to just to close and okay. pray for you in these moments. Is that all right? Thank you. Sure. Awesome. Join me if you would. God, you are so good. You are so gracious and loving. And um, what a joy it is to be in fellowship with your church and the people that uh, you have called. God, I thank you for Zach. I thank you for his ministry. I thank you for the impact that you've had in his life. And uh, God, I pray that you would continue to bless him. I pray for his church back home, their congregation, that you would help them to continue to be faithful in their vocations, faithful as a church to that which you've entrusted them to. May they flourish in their knowledge of you and their growing in this gospel message together. Be with Zach as he teaches at Covenant. I pray that you would help his work to flourish there so that the school can produce students and folks that will go all into the world and uh, make a great impact for the gospel uh, in ways that imagine, but you see it and you know the impact that all these folks are having. God, I pray for us now as we go from this place that uh, we know that you're with us. We pray that you would make us aware of that reality. Help us to draw strength from you. Help us to lean into you and to really realize through the course of our weeks and our days that we have limits, that we're human. And uh, God, that you are our strength and you are the one that supplies. We give ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great day.